The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I realize I sound at times like a broken record of redundancy, but the, the idea of creativeness, the gift that creativeness is of art, is so awesome that that didn't exist in that form before this week. That God using the giftedness of individuals to come together collaboratively to take... That's what the scripture means when it says, each day I sing a new song. It means that there's something new that I realize about the scripture that brings my soul to life and I sing that new song. It doesn't have to be a new lyric per se but a beauty of a new song that we sing, and we are so blessed uh, to have um, talent here in our church and to see the beauty of art from the simple things. Did you notice anything new last Sunday on the stage? Yeah, I mean, just the simple art of a different background near uh, the, the screen, or you walk out uh, and you see the beauty of the art of the pictures taken from the eye uh, of John Reckon, of the, the beauty of the low country that's on the walls and uh, the art uh, of different things that are around that we celebrate. If you go into the student center and you see uh, some canvases there that are the beauty of art coming out of uh, some of our own people, those were blank canvases and now they're beautiful and God working through beauty uh, to move us in our relationship with him. And that's what the Psalms do. The Psalms move us in beauty and in artistry and imagery and metaphor and simile and all of that. It moves us to understand who God is more profoundly. It engages a different part of our soul. One person, I don't remember who it was years ago, I heard said that for the artist it's like a second soul. That there's a different way that the artist sees uh, the world and portrays the world and expresses truth uh, within uh, the world. And the art and the beauty and the tapestry of the Psalms tap into and take the deeply profound theological truths that we have. If you remember a number of weeks ago, we talked about how the Holy Spirit uh, is the music of the gospel. It takes the lyric and brings it to life. And that's a bit of what the Psalms do. Uh, they bring it to life and you hear uh, David, now as we come to Psalm 62, you hear David calling out for the Lord, preaching to others, preaching to himself, coming to God. Last week we, we looked and we, we saw David coming in Psalm 19 to the knowable God. Uh, that God is a God who made himself known to us both in creation uh, and in and through his word. So this week, what a beautiful week here, because you could go out onto the beach in the evening and simultaneously look over your left shoulder and see the glory of a sunset with all the beauty of the purples and oranges uh, that were there and looking out over the ocean and seeing the full moon rising uh, at the same time and recognizing God holds them together. That that art didn't exist until God spoke into nothingness and said exist. Reflect my glory in creation as the thunderstorms rolled through and you felt the power of God and sensed it as it's all there. I sat in my backyard 
and the hummingbirds were around and just fascinated by them. And it made me go, what an awesome God that he created these little suckers who are weird looking and mean and dangerous seeming. And, but God, that's so great. And it drew me, not because I'm a pastor, it drew me as a Christian, as a follower of him, to his word to go, I want to know more about this God. Because I can know something about him in creation, but I have to go to his word, his special revelation, his divine giving of us of himself to go, oh, you're more than just the creator of nature. You're the king of all things and the redeemer of my life. And that's what David was moving now. A same writer, same person, David, who could articulate the beauty of creation and the beauty of God's word, now comes, and some have called this a psalm of lament, of pouring out your heart before God. It's been called the, the alone psalm or the only psalm because within this psalm, uh, the Hebrew word ach, ak, uh, is repeated five times, four times as applying to God. The word that you see in your English translation, alone and only, are actually the same word in the Hebrew. Uh, and it says, God alone is this. God only is this saying that everything else isn't this. There's an exclusivity to the person and work of God, and especially in and work of Jesus Christ. So we come to this psalm, and we don't know the context. I don't know what David was going through, but I know this much. He was going through something, and he was tired. Because he says to the Lord, how long? You ever said that? How long? How long is this going to go on? I'm tired. How long am I going to experience this? David was experiencing it. Maybe it was the battles with Absalom. Maybe it was the revolts and the revolution. Uh, maybe it, it was just the pain uh, of a father. I can't even imagine that pain. Even a revolting son. Uh, a father who finds his son dead and buries his son. And the agony of suffering over the course of time that he comes back to the Lord and goes, How long? How long is the enemy of death going to assail me? How long? Maybe it was when he was early on in his ministry and Saul was assaulting him. And he's going, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? I need your help. I need your strength. I need you to remind me of some things. And this is what comes out of David's heart, given by the Lord to him to bring and to preserve for us. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 62? You've heard it. Now, this is the third form. We wrote the prayer from Psalm 62, the song that was sung from Psalm 62, and now reading, actually, Psalm 62. So, hopefully you're getting a little bit of what we're trying to do. of wanting to make sure that we see the onlyness of God. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse, Selah. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. 
for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory and my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. But no trust. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard him, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. And so we come this morning and the psalm breaks out nicely into helping us understand what David is doing. David addresses God. He addresses his enemies. He addresses his own soul. He begins to preach to the congregation and then goes back to speaking to God and about God. And we see this interplay and this interchange that's taking place. And what we find and what we're going to see here is a very simple outline. One and foremost, there's a problem. David highlights for us that there is a problem. And then what we find in life, and it's constant in life, that when we face a problem, our culture and the world offers a counterfeit solution. So there's a problem, and then there's a counterfeit solution that is presented for us and is exposed, as you were, uh, as you would in this scripture. So there's a problem, there's a counterfeit solution, but then he gives the true solution or the true source, and then gives us the fourth thing how to appropriate that. So there's a problem, a counterfeit solution, the true solution, and then how do we appropriate these truths into our own lives and to what end? So, first, the problem. And the problem is very simply this we have an enemy trying to destroy us. That's what David said. There's an enemy trying to destroy us. In his world, he was specifically talking about there were people. There were an unnamed group. He speaks of the they. How long will all of you attack? And in the Hebrew, it's really southern. How long will all y'all attack a man to batter him? He's speaking to a large group. He's saying, how long will you do this? How long will this group of individuals, this entity, How long will it attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They, we don't know who the they is, they only plan to thrust him down from his position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So the first thing that we see within the problem is that we have an enemy. David had a specific enemy. But what David was pointing to, and the Lord is pointing to in this psalm, is it alludes to the greater problem that the New Testament brings and explains that says this, yes, the evil one is alive and well, and his purpose is to destroy you. When God spoke to Cain in the garden, he said, Cain, be very careful 
about what you're thinking about doing in your heart. Cain, I already know that in your heart, that anger, that seed of murder, has now had fertile ground upon which to to grow. And it is going to sprout forth. And it's going to murder your brother. So be careful because the evil one is there. Your enemy crouches. It hides itself. But it's still an enemy. It, it, It pretends that it's small. But what it's doing is it's bringing its power down into a more potent form to pounce on you because its desire, he says, is to have you. Its desire is to destroy you. That there is an enemy. And he's not neutral. And he doesn't like you. He actually hates you. You are threatening to him. And so he wants to neutralize you. If you're a believer, he can't kill you and destroy you, but he can neutralize you to some degree. He can make you almost ineffective in the work of the true kingdom. Peter picked up on that idea uh, and that theme in 1 Peter when he was talking to a persecuted church who would have read Psalm 62 and would have understood the, the idea of enemy. It would have been the Roman government at that time. It would have been persecutors from even the, uh, the, Jerusalem, uh, uh, the Jews from Jerusalem and elsewhere in the synagogues. Uh, it, it would have been all of this pursuit of them and they would have been able to say, how long? And Peter says, here, look, be careful, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to cuddle up with, seeking to be sweet and to let you pet him a little bit and to rub your fingers through his mane. Of course not. He's a lion. And he is a devouring lion because he's going to act by his nature. The enemy will eventually act by its nature. And its nature is this, it has its desire for you, to devour you, to eat you, to consume you, to crush you, and destroy you. That's what Peter was saying. And then Paul was explaining it a little further. Paul said, yes, and it can take the form of humanity. It can be a human being who's attacking you. It can be a government that's attacking you. It can be persecution in those ways. But here's the real battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. He's saying there is a a battle that is raging on. Folks, it is not just the paranoid who think that somebody is out to get them. There is an enemy. But we live in a Western culture, an enlightened culture, an American culture, which says there is no spiritual dynamic. There is no reality out there. And that is one of Satan's greatest, greatest victories, is to convince the Americans and the American church and the Western mind that there is no evil, that we're okay. But folks, the reality is this. If this is God's revealed word, and it is, and it says there's an enemy, guess what? There's an enemy. And you know what enemies do? They try to destroy the people they hate. And that's what this one is. We have an enemy. And what we also know in this psalm is not only do we have an enemy, the problem isn't just that we have an enemy, the problem is that we're a vulnerable victim. Isn't that great? Good morning, you're a vulnerable victim. You're susceptible to attacks. Your defenses have holes in them. You can be breached. Uh, in this way because look at it David is tired I've already said it a couple of times but David's tired when he says how long that's not just how long how long but more of that deep how long have any of you all ever felt that way or feel that way today of how long how long is the assault going to go on 
How long am I going to have to constantly fight the same battle? How long? How long? God, how long? So what we find is we're a tired victim. We're a tired person. We're tired. And when we're tired, guess what happens? Your defenses begin to get weaker. Because you're just tired. And you know what happens when you get tired? You relate an awful lot to 1 Kings 19. Most of you know 1 Kings 18. Mount Carmel, fire on the mountain. All of this great, powerful stuff happening on the mountain. It's awesome. It's incredible. It's all of this. But guess what happens in chapter 19? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And Elijah goes, I'm so tired. I'm tired of God, you doing something incredible, but nothing seems to be changing in the world. The government still is the government. All of this is happening. And Elijah walks out into the desert to what? To die. He goes, he's not suicidal, but he's just at this point of going, God, I'm tired. And I would love to just go to bed tonight and wake up in heaven. My soul to keep. I'm tired. And I can't fight anymore. And some of you relate so well to that. And what you also see about yourself is that you're like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. You don't have a lot of defense left. You're barely holding on. When that wind blows, it just is like this. We were spared, truly spared, from the damage of uh, the storm, Matthew. Literally, our only damage was the little uh, fence around our trash can was broken. And now it won't stay attached. And when the wind blows, it goes, whoosh, and it opens up. And Lisa looked at me the other day, and she goes, did you move the fence? It's like, nope, wind blew. It's just a tottering fence. It's just leaning. It just flaps. It has no resistance. It's about to fall over. It needs to be shored up. What David is saying is, this is what it's like for us sometimes. What it's like for you sometimes. Do you see the lament Do you see that part of his heart that you think, I'm not supposed to feel it. I'm a Christian. I'm an overcomer. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am am with God and I'm with Jesus and everything's awesome. (laughs) But it's not. It really stinks. And I'd like to use another word, but I can't. It's just, gosh. And you are lamenting. And that's what David's doing. I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable to this enemy because I know I have an enemy. I know I'm vulnerable to this enemy. And oh, great. I also know that this enemy is very powerful because it says he's like a battering ram. That picture is of almost this medieval picture of the men, you know, who would carry the big tree and it'd have the big brass thing on the front and they'd ram it against the gate and they would push against it until the gate would fall and they would batter against it. That's the picture of it, of the battering that's constant. And so you have a constant enemy who's constantly battering against your already weakened, tottering vulnerable defenses and he's powerful and then the only time the word only is used outside of the context of God is here it said and he only has plans to thrust you down and so you find that this enemy is singularly focused he's very singular he does not have ADHD folks a squirrel runs by and he could care less because he's fixated on you He's fixated on knowing your defenses, of finding vulnerabilities in your defenses, battering them down, coming at you, attacking at your heart, the wellspring of your life, trying to get you. And then you find about him that not only is he a constant and rhythmic and battering and he's powerful uh, in all of this, that he is singularly focused, but dang it, he's also deceptive. 
He's sly-tongued. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse, and they take pleasure in falsehood. He loves to use words to draw you in. The temptation of saying, come over here. This has happened. Why would you place your trust in God alone? He's not a good God. He's not this. This is who you really are. These are what these people are. And there's just this lie and this deceptiveness that comes. And he says things to you and you're like, oh, that's it. That's great. And in the underneath it, it's a true falsehood and a lie. He's double-tongued and he's deceptive and hypocritical says, Scripture describes our enemy as the father of lies. That's how it began in the garden. Because every lie in his deception has a little bit of truth. Just enough. Every heresy, both past and present, has truth in it, but not full truth. And that's how our enemy loves to work. So the problem? We have an enemy who's trying to destroy us, right? Would you agree with that? Do you ever feel and sense that attack in your life? It's not just the uber spiritual and it's not just the charismatics and Pentecostals. It's all of us feel that attack. So what do we do with it? The counterfeit solution that David presents to us is this. You take matters into your own hands. Because guess what? We've built a relatively good country on the power of our own hands and taking things in and matters into our own hands. We've done really, really well for ourselves. Some of you are self-made. Don't you love that language? He's a self-made man. He's a, she's a self-made woman. What does that tell you? We took matters into our own hands. We saw a problem and we conquered it. We fixed it. And most likely what we did was we looked at the techniques of the enemy, whatever it is, and we then conscripted those techniques into our own because they worked so well against us, we thought maybe they could work well for us. And that's what David says here. David says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He says, be very careful. The tendency of the human heart is to run to take matters into your own hands. Your misplaced trust. That somehow if you can manipulate by robbery and extortion, that your trust and your hope come in how good you are. That you're really, really, and some of you are really, really good at what you do. But what you find at the end of the day is it's just you doing it. And what you need to understand here is you have an enemy who's stronger than you. You're not going to be able to beat him on your own. And so he says we misplace our trust. We misplace uh, our hope. We misplace our love. He says this, you can go after wealth because wealth is a wonderful way to incubate and insulate yourself from the assaults of the enemy. If you just have enough. If you can just go do enough things, if you can just enjoy enough, if you can sip the finest of things, eat the best of things, go and play on the best of things, and then all of a sudden, maybe all those things just won't hurt because at least, hey, here's what you look at. You go, my life stinks. If you're honest, you go, ah, my life, but dang, I've got a good house. My life is a wreck. But man, my family is awesome. I drive a sweet car. I've got a couple of commas in my net worth. I am good and I am fine. And we place this pose on ourselves and we go, it's okay. I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to manipulate everything. And what we realize at the end of the day, and some of you are doing that, you're trying so hard that you're running and you're saying this, I'm single, and if I can get married, then I'll find my true identity. 
that my identity lies in marriage. And what happens when you find two people who are trying to find their identity in marriage because the evil one has battered against their, uh, their leaning walls and their tottering fences and battered against them to say you are nothing, uh, that you're single, that you have no hope in this life, that you need to get married. When you have two people who are trying to find hope in marriage, it's a tick theology. You have two ticks and no hound dog. Get the picture? You're sucking life out of each other. And you're going, this is going to give me life. And some of you are going, that's your problem. That's what you're looking at your spouse and going, that's you. <laughs> no, but the, the reality is this. You manipulate. And you listen to the lie of culture which says if you get married then. But you know what you find out about marriage? It can be the loneliest place. It can be the most brutal place. Because you're looking and manipulating and trying to find your identity in that. Some of you have determined, and some have determined, if I just have a child, because barrenness must be a curse from God, so that if I just have a child, then I will have identity. I can manipulate this. I can move this. I can do something here. By having a child, then I'm going to be significant. By having a child in a family, then. And you know what you do? You place upon that child the very weight of your soul, and guess what you do to your children? You crush them. They were never designed to bear the weight of the soul of the parent. Because you've gone to a counterfeit solution. For others, it's in your work. It's in your wealth. It's in the wellspring of the, uh, you know, of the fountains of youth. That somehow if you can just stay looking young and feel young, you will be. And it will be okay. And we run to these other things. But what we look and find at the end of the day is this. That no human effort is effective. The counterfeit solution is never effective. Listen to verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up and they are together lighter than a breath. What he's saying is this, all of your human effort. From the greatest of you to the lowest of you, take all of that together, place it on the scales of life and guess how much it weighs. It's lighter than a breath. It's not your glory. Interesting word. It is not your glory. It can't Handle the weightiness of your soul. Your soul needs something else. This attack that's coming needs something else. You need something else of substance. And when you run to these other things and you pile them all up at the end of the day, then you go, oh, here it is. Marriage, kids, wealth, prestige, all of these things. Oh, this is great. I'm going to throw the weight of my soul on it. You know what happens? It disappears and you go crashing down. And you look and go, why am I more desperate now than I was to begin with? Because it's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said, cotton candy of cotton candy, it's all of life is cotton candy. If you go and try to eat cotton candy for substance in life, all you have left is a sticky film in your mouth. It was never designed to bring you life and substance, and neither was all this other stuff. It was designed to bring some fun, maybe a little happiness, a little good here and there, but not to have the weight of your soul. That's what the enemy is trying to convince you that it can. And David is saying, no, I'm going to expose the counterfeit solution. So there's a problem. There's a counterfeit solution. So now we need to come and understand the true solution. You see how easy Bible study is? I mean, it's just right here in Psalm 62. It's awesome. The true solution is this. God is your only source. Four times. It's important when Scripture says something one time. Really important when it repeats it a second time. The writer here says four times the onlyness of God. Saying God alone. God only. 
God alone, God only. Why do you think he's saying this over and over? For God alone my soul waits in silence. For him alone, or him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, oh, my soul wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock and my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. You only, God only, these things. You alone, you only. Why does he need to say that so many times? Because we have a tendency to add something to God. We have a tendency to have a God plus theology. You would never say, I don't want God, but you would say, I'll take God, but I got to have that marriage and happiness. I want Jesus, but I'd also need the money. I want Jesus, but I want my health. I want Jesus, but I want straight A's. I got Jesus. You're not willing to throw Jesus out. You're only willing to add to him. And if you add to him, you dilute him. And if you dilute him, you miss him altogether. What Jesus is trying to say in the midst of this, and God is trying to say in the midst of this, is what do you think? Only. It's really not rocket science. God alone. And if that means God alone is the place of your salvation, hope, and all of that, what does that mean about every other source? It's not. God alone is this. And look what he says. Here's how, you can't see it really well, but you kind of see the different colors that are on. This is how I study the Bible. Because I look and I realize there's repetition. And so I go and I mark. God is described, God alone is described four times as my salvation. And I highlighted it in yellow. He's my salvation. Three times he's described as my rock. Two times my fortress, two times my refuge, one time my hope, and one time my glory. God is my salvation. David needed to hear that. David needed us to hear that. God needed us to hear that, hear you, that you need saving is what he's saying primarily in that. You need saving. That means you're in bondage. You need salvation and you can't do it of yourself. And the counterfeits are never going to work for you. They're not strong enough to get you out of the problem in which you find yourself uh, of wrestling with sin and death, of overcoming this world and the things of this world. So there's got to be one who is my salvation and God alone is my salvation. Now in the church, here's how that goes. It's Christ alone, not Christ plus your works. Folks, some of you have it this way. It is my works plus Jesus. And here's how it comes out so often when I talk to you. Tell me about your walk with Christ. Well, I'm trying to be a good Christian. What are you going to say to God on that end day when, he, when you face him and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I'll, I'll tell him that I've really worked hard to be a good Christian. You see, my works and Jesus are my salvation. Jesus is saying, I don't want your works. Your works are like filthy rags, feminine napkins. They're disgusting and they don't garner you anything. But my works do. Only my works. The Father's not going to go, hey Bill, thanks for adding to Jesus. He was right around a 98, but your 2% really took us over the top. (laughs) No! Christ alone. God alone is my salvation. He's my rock. He's that strong place. They, They lived in an area with a lot of sand And to build a house, it said the wise men built his house on what? 
a solid rock foundation. But the foolish man built his house on sand, shifting sand on things that had no substance. God is my rock. He's my fortress. Really, the word is, he's my wall surrounding my city. He, he is that which gives me protection at night, encompasses me. He is that place for me. He's my refuge. What a great word to recapture now in today's political environment. You want to know where the idea of refuge cities came from? It's from the scriptures. For the sojourner and for the one falsely accused and for the one who's being chased and attacked, they could run to a place of refuge and they could come and they could be safe and protected. And Jesus is saying this. What a mental picture. What a visual picture of David and us running from an enemy who's pursuing us, trying to destroy us. And we run to a place of refuge. And then the walls are closed and we're safe inside. And we can sleep. We can hear the enemy roaring outside the walls. But we know inside these walls we're safe. He's my refuge. He's my hope. Not my wish. I'd like to win the lottery. I think it's at a pretty big number now. But that's not my hope. That's just a vain wish. My hope is in the Lord. And He's my glory. Interesting again, the word choice. The word glory uh, is that word chavod, which means He's my weightiness. He is my significance. Remember what it said about humanity and all human effort? But Christ is my weight. He's the significance of my life. He establishes. And when I throw the weight of my life on top of Him, He isn't shaken or moved. Because He's my rock. He's my foundation. He is all of these things to me. And look at you. Catch the constant word in all of these descriptions. descriptions. One word, little word, two letters. You know, one word, two letters. Sounds like I. So what's the word? My. Possessive pronoun. He is my salvation. He is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my refuge. He's my hope. He's my glory. He's not an abstract. He's not just glory. And he's not just salvation. And he's not just a fortress. Somewhere out there for someone. He's mine. And I need to know that he's mine. Because guess what I know about this life? It's my life. And they're my tears. And it's my broken heart. And it's my crushed hopes. And it's my battles. And I need to know that I have a God who says, I'm yours. And you're mine. And I am this for you, not just for that other person. I am it for you. Isn't that good news? There's been such a movement to make God only intimate uh, that we've sort of swung back to keeping Him up here and holier now. But we need to understand the my. A simple possessive pronoun changes everything. And to God alone belong authority. God speaks once. I heard it twice. He said it. I'm good. To God alone is power. Contrasted again to that lighter than breath. They might have some power to try to knock down, uh -uh, but they can't stand against you. That's why you go to other places in Scripture and you read about the Lord of hosts. The Lord of all of the armies of heaven is on your side. Isn't that great? Because then all you got to do is kind of go, I can't whistle. Sounded like I spit. Sorry. (laughs) Somebody's going to listen on the recording like, what in the heck did he just do? And it's looking back over your shoulder because you're going to look at an enemy who looks pretty large and he's going to look an awful lot like Goliath 
and Goliath is going to rage against you and he's going to stand there with a big old spear and a big old helmet and a big old head and a big old threat and all of that. And you're going to look around and go, oh, I've got the Lord of, of the hosts with me and all of the hosts of heaven are on my side. Get him. And you're surrounded and protected and defended beautifully and perfectly. And he is the God of steadfast love. Chesed. That word covenant faithfulness. That he is faithful to his word to you. Even though you're not faithful to your word to him. Any of you ever broken a promise you made to God? Honestly. Really? To follow him perfectly and never ever be tempted to go, or maybe tempted's okay because it says temptation's not the problem, it's when we act on temptation. So we've all failed in our covenant promises to God, right? Right? Okay, trying to find a little common ground with you folks because I know I do. And here's the beauty of what God says to me. Bill, I never break my promise to you. I'm completely covenantally faithful to you. I am your God and you are my son. I am the one who has redeemed you. I am Boaz for you. I am your redeemer. I am the one who loves your soul more than anything else. Even though you play the part of Gomer in the story of Hosea. I, God says I play the part of Hosea. You go prostitute yourself with all those other lovers that are out there. But I'm the one who comes back to you and I cover your nakedness. And I purchase you back. And I whisper in your ear this. Not shame, but this. I whisper in your ear, Bill. Just, just me. Don't pursue other lovers anymore. They've only destroyed you. I'm the only lover who will ever fully bring your heart to life. Why do you run after less wild lovers? Girls in high school and college, every boy who comes to you is offering you love in order to get physical affection from you. And girls will offer physical affection in order to get love. And so what you need to look at in that situation is this. I'm not about to give myself to a less wild lover. I've got a lover in heaven who loves me perfectly. And I'm about to lower my standards for you, you pimple-nosed little boy. (laughs) No, I'm more than that because I know who my God is. And then as an adult, you're going to look around and your corporation and and your friends and all of it are going to say, come pursue me. Come and come after me and you're going to know, why would I prostitute myself after you? Because I know who I am. And so our response is this in the middle of it. And we'll end here. We pray, we trust, and we wait. David says, pour out your heart to the Lord. That's what Psalm 62 is. It's a prayer. He's pouring out his heart to the Lord. And again, I say this not to, I want you to feel a commonality. Are any of you, or have you been tired in the midst of the battle of this life? Any of you? Have you been honest with God about that? Or have you bought into some lie that says, I can't, that w- I can't say that. David says, pour out your heart. Even like in Romans, when Paul said, with groanings too deep for words, sometimes the best prayer that you have is this prayer. Oh, I'm tired. There have been moments in my life When everything is so heavy that all I can do is weep before God. And you know what he does? He translates it into the groanings of my heart. And he comes to the beauty of his spirit. He says, Bill, let me come near to you. Let me now pour myself out onto you. Thank you for pouring yourself out onto me. 
So we pray, we pour ourselves out, and we trust in Him. We trust, we say, I'm going to displace my trust from everything else, and I'm going to place my trust actively on God, and then I'm going to wait. I'm going to let God be God. David says it twice in here. Interesting, one time is is descriptive and one time is prescriptive. The descriptive says, oh, my soul waits. And you go, oh, that's awesome. My soul waits. That's not my soul. Then David says, not mine either. Soul, wait on God. Imperative with an exclamation point uh, in verse 5. So he preaches to his heart. Soul, you wait on God. You're not God, so you don't get to determine the time. You trust him. You pour yourself out to him and you wait on him because he's a faithful God. And then at the end of the day, you're not going to be greatly shaken. Interesting word addition there, isn't it? It doesn't just say you won't be shaken. It says you won't be greatly shaken. There'll be a shaking. Cancer, it shakes you. Death, it shakes you. Divorce, it shakes you. Addiction, it shakes you. Old age, it shakes you. Senility uh, and dementia, it, it shakes you. Decisions and things in this life, they shake you. But you're not greatly shaken. Because your foundation is upon something greater than this world. And it says you will be sort of shaken, but you will hold fast. You'll make it to the end. Isn't that good news? Wouldn't it be great to be honest with God? Your prayers should be honest. And they should include some lament from your soul that looks to God only for your help. Let's pray.